it's sometimes said about the teachings of the Buddha that they are uh, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. And uh, what I'd like to talk about tonight is, uh, I'm not sure about it being good, but it is, uh, for me, I consider it useful at the beginning, useful in the middle, and useful in the end. And that is uh, the topic of the, uh, the hindrances, the sometimes called the difficulties in practice, sometimes called the obscurations, the defilements, uh, really the forces in our own minds that when unnoticed prevent us from really touching the, um, the depths of our being, that prevent us from having uh, insight that color our perception in such a way that we cannot believe that the source of our well-being is to be found here and now. It is a, each hindrance is a story of why I cannot be happy now. And I say it's a story because uh, it, really is, it really does not tell the truth. It tells the truth that we're experiencing something, but often the narrative associated with the hindrances is, um, is um, the expression of ignorance or delusion. So why do we call it, why do we call them hindrances? Did any of you experience today planning your escape? (laughs) Did any of you ask the question, why am I here? What am I doing? What am I doing here? Did any of you want your experience to be different than the way it was? Did that have the effect of bringing ease and (laughs) well-being? Did any of you not like what you were experiencing? Any of you feel a little bit restless or agitated? Any of you dull? Experience classic sloth and torpor. That's what it's often called. Did any of you, I already asked you, if you've, you've asked yourself why you're here, that's just the expression of the hindrance of doubt. Why am I here? What am I doing? So I'd like to talk about these states tonight, but I want to contextualize it a little bit to, uh, to the Buddha's teachings, uh, the, the flow of the Buddha's teachings, or the flow of his understanding As many of you know that the first talk that he gave to his old ascetic friends that he'd been wandering around with, who were really sincere meditators, was a sutra called the uh, Dhammachaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And in that teaching that he gave to his friends, thinking that they were those with just a little dust in their eyes, and it pointed in the right direction, might be able to realize some of the freedom and ease that he had found as none other than his own mind. So he began his teaching not by saying how wonderful everything is, but he talked about first that life has its stresses, that there's stress in being born, there's stress in getting sick, there's stress in getting old, there's stress in dying, there's stress in not getting what you want, there's stress in not wanting what you get, there's stress in being separated from things and people that you love. There is grief, there's lamentation, there's sorrow. This is just a fact of existence. Innumerable kinds of stresses that are inherent in human existence. And he gave a prescription to his friends that these, this truth that they're stressed, uh, in order to work with it, it must be welcomed. It must be accepted. Did we accept it? Do we accept it? I think by virtue of the fact that the hindrances flow through our minds so much, I think we have, as a species, we have spent the last, as 
one person, one of my teachers put it, last 35 million years running from this truth, from this prescription. And instead we have evolved to, uh, to act out what he called the second noble truth, the cause of suffering. Of course, the simple way would, saying, would be to say the cause of suffering is, is it to be in contention with how things are. To be with in contention with what it is that's happening. And you can think about your experience today. Were you in contention with what was happening? You weren't just in contention, you were actually having insight, if you notice this, you were having insight into the second noble truth. I often think it was, you just didn't have a hard, you, just, you didn't only have a hard day, if those of you had a hard day, but you also had insight into the first noble truth, and perhaps the second. But the second noble truth, he described that the cause of this, the way that this, this contention with the present moment in our life presents itself is by getting caught in a state of craving, wanting, that deep conditioned habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are, that expresses itself as wanting for something more pleasurable, the craving for sense pleasures. Any of you have that today? How many of you looked forward to the bell ringing at the end of the sitting? The secret to happiness. How many of you, how many of you were certain that you could not be happy until the bell rang? You could not find relief. This is the trance of the mind that is seeking sense pleasures. This is the trance that suggests that something, I have to have some experience, I have to get somewhere, I have to, something has to happen in order for me to, to experience some relief. And you've all heard this before, but you, the great opportunity of a practice period is you get to see it directly, how this operates in your mind. And by meeting it, a little sneak preview on on what the talk will be about, by meeting it with mindful attention, you begin to transform that experience that when, when unnoticed becomes so hypnotic, entrancing, and the cause of so much dis-ease and so much, uh, so much an experience of the present moment as not acceptable, uh, that that, ex- that relationship can be transformed through our mindfulness. So the second noble truth, this cause of suffering, this deep conditioned habit to want things to be different than the way they are, expressing itself as desire for sense pleasure. The desire for, he also talked about the desire for becoming, that our mind is often in a state of being on our way from here to there, on our way to that imagined future when all will be well that future that unfortunately never arrives because it's just an idea called future in the present moment because time is always now. So our mind can easily be entranced into waiting and hoping, expecting uh, for for the end of the rainbow. And we can literally live our hours, days, years of our lives in a sense of suspended well-being, not, I can't be happy until I get wherever I imagine I'm going. So we get caught in a state of becoming. Or we get, in, or we get caught in the state of, what do you call the state of non-becoming, trying to shut things out. And this really reflects the um, the three root causes of, um, of stress and suffering that the Buddha described. The force of greed in the mind, or grasping, the force of hatred, which is just the flip side of that, and the force of delusion or ignorance, not seeing clearly uh, what it is that's going on and falling into, falling into confusion and uh, checking out. So all the hindrances flow from this uh, misperception that a sense of well-being can be found some other place than here.
Now we come to these hindrances, the forces in our own minds. This is, they're not really personal in that everyone has them. And of course we tend to take them very personally. It's all about me. Everything becomes about me. But really all of us have been conditioned with the same forces in our mind from the time we, we were born. I was, one retreat I was about to give a hindrance talk and I started thinking about an, an alternative retreat. And people arrived at the retreat and they were given the operating instructions for the retreat, what you're supposed to do at the retreat. And the, thought, and the instructions were, think all day, get lost in thought, distract yourself any way you can, gratify every desire, feed the wanting mind, hold on tightly to your experience, control yourself. So most of you chuckle a little bit when you hear this, but what does it sound like? This, this is the conditioning that we all uh, are trained in. And this is the instructions that we have been given from the time we were, we were born. I'll elaborate on that a little bit as I go through the different hindrances. So the first hindrance, so-called hindrance, that which clouds our perception and suggests some reason why I can't be happy now, is the force in the mind called desire. Desire for sense pleasures. And when I say desire, it doesn't mean all desires. There are those desires that tend to lead to more desires and more dissatisfaction. And then there are those desires that lead to less dissatisfaction, to more sense of connection, to more sense of freedom. When I think of this, I think of the Buddha. The Buddha was filled with desire, what I call a holy longing or a holy desire. But he gave rise in his heart that I imagine each of you has given rise in yours for that one desire that no other desire can fulfill, the desire to, for freedom, a desire in his case for a sense of well-being that was reliable. He made a distinction between when he talked about comfort and happiness and the relief that we all look for, he made a distinction between the kind of happiness that depends on getting somewhere, that depends on satisfying a hunger, that depends on something going away or getting something. He called that conditioned happiness, he called it lokiya sukha. And on the other side, what really the aim of the, of the teachings are, the aim of the practice, was what he called Lokutra Sukha, a sense of well-being that is beyond conditions, that is free of hunger, that doesn't depend on what's happening, that can sit in the middle of the joys and the sorrows uh, and not have a demand or expectation, not be caught in the demand or expectation that things get um, change, be different, that you get what you want. So if you, are, if you came to the retreat aiming for the first kind of happiness, came to practice, even yoga practice or meditation practice, if, you aimed, if you're just aiming for a little more comfort, some temporary relief, some pleasurable experience, a quieter mind, um, any number of things that you set up as the criteria for what would bring relief to you, you're likely to be quite disappointed. But if, on the other hand, you came to the retreat really uh, with that one desire that no other desire can fulfill, that desire for a sense of well-being that is unconditioned, as, one, as it's often described, unassailable, untouchable, unstuck from the, from the prison of dissatisfaction. You're in good hands if that's the desire. How many of you are interested in that? <laughs> okay. So in spite of all of us being interested in that, I don't think anyone would come to the retreat unless they knew that, that 
freedom was an inside job and that you didn't have to lift out of this moment to find it. But yet, what happens when we sit down, trying to sit in the middle of our experience, accept what comes, work with it? What enters our mind is, um, especially if it starts to get a little uncomfortable, fantasy. Any of you have any fantasies today? Desire for pleasure, as I mentioned before, desire for the bell to ring. That's, a, that's a, an association that's easy to come in your mind. Ah, the bell will, I'll feel better. I'm feeling a little restless, right, or a little, my body hurts right now. Uh, I've had enough. There's actually more than one hindrance going on here. In fact, I get not only some wanting, but I get some not wanting there. Then I also get a little restless, especially if this desire for the bell to ring has gone unnoticed. And then I struggle with that, and then I get exhausted. And then I start to wonder, why did I sign up for this? (laughs) And encapsulated in perhaps 30-second little vignette, you have experienced what we call a multiple hindrance attack where all of these forces have converged in your mind and convinced you that the, that the bell was the secret to happiness. And of course, that exquisite sound. And everyone lets out, at least not necessarily outwardly, but inwardly, a sigh. Ah. Thirst has been quenched. The hunger has been fulfilled. Now, why did the Buddha call this search for that kind of pleasure unreliable? Because that whole period, while you were waiting for the bell to ring, while you were demanding that the bell ring, your sense of well-being was suspended. You were hanging on that expectant moment. What happened in the course of those minutes to your relationship to the present moment? As Eckhart Tolle puts it, the relationship to the present moment gets colored in one of three main ways when we enter into these states. The present moment just becomes a means of getting somewhere else, a pass-through on our way to, to something else. It becomes an obstacle, or it becomes the enemy. All the while, this is really just a trance in our mind. And it's only a trance when it goes unnoticed. Now, you can recall that you had these experiences today. But were you mindful of them? Were you able to take them up as the object of meditation at that time and say, oh, this is wanting. This is restlessness. This is doubt. This is dullness. This is, this is aversion. And this is really the invitation of practice, to come out of the trance and whatever the, the story is of these particular states of mind and to notice Oh, this is what desire is like. This is what ill will is like. This is what boredom is like. Somebody mentioned boredom this morning. Somebody mentioned sloth and torpor. Often these states of mind entrance us into into a a dream world of uh, of the imagined, as I mentioned before, the imagined future. When I was thinking about this today, about the the force of, especially the force of wanting in the mind, the desire for sense pleasures. I think in terms of a cultural message is the more the better. You think of this, there's a character that I often will share uh, a kind of cynical advertisement about this guy named Spence, who in this caption he says, Spence gives a new twist to an old philosophy, to an ancient philosophy. 
He says, to be one with everything, you must have one of everything. <laughs> and this is the way that, that our mind is trained. And what else is the effect of living in that trance? Besides our relationship to the present moment, we may satisfy one of those desires for sense pleasure. The bell may ring. We may experience the relief of it. Then what happens? We believe that it was actually that experience, that thing, that person, that place, that end of the week, whatever it might be, we think that's what actually gave us the relief. But what really gives us the relief is what? What really gives the relief is the passing away of that mental state, of that force in our mind. We're no longer in a state of wanting. But what is, what's the residue of that state? The residue is because we actually think that it was the bell that makes me happy, the thing, the person, the place, it triggers a, a little condition in my mind. It creates a little conditioning. It creates the conditioning to, continual, to continually seek after more pleasure for relief. So I, I started to say I was thinking today about this tribe in, uh, off the coast of Burma. Some of you may have read about them during the time of that big tsunami that came and actually killed a lot of people and disrupted a lot of communities and very devastating. I don't remember how many years ago it was. But there was a tribe of, of fisher, fishermen and fisherwomen who lived along the coast of Burma who always lived very in tune with nature, in tune with the sea. And there was a Burmese community, a more uh, acculturated community just down the beach, who also uh, people who fished for a living. And they, that whole community was wiped out during, but the Mokan survived because they were really in tune with the rhythms of nature. You could say that they lived in a way in the timeless unfolding of things because there were two words that they lacked in their vocabulary that I think it would be interesting for each of us to reflect on. The two words were, they had no word for want and they no, had no word for when. Try it out for a moment. For one moment, letting the word want fall from your mind and the word when. In other words, it's an invitation to step out of time. Because each time want enters your mind, each time a desire for sense pleasure, you enter into the trance of time. And your mind then enters into a creation, a, a, a dream of an imagined past, moving through the imagined present, going toward the imagined future. Do these really exist when we're simply present? When we just connect with this moment as it is? Where is time then? Where is the past? Where is the future? Where is this, even this idea that we call present? It's at that moment that we come out of that trance that we drop into an experience of life. Where, and it's partly why we, at that moment that bell rings, we feel this great relief. Now that may scare you to think of being without time, but that's just the idea of it. The reality is we love it. We love not to be entranced. But the fact is, from the time we were born, we were conditioned to have these forces play through our mind. It just comes with the territory. It may come just with our brain development. One of our friends and colleagues, Wes Nisker, often talks about our frontal lobe. It's just the state of our evolution that, we, that the way we're designed, literally, at this point, is to be in a relatively constant state of wanting and dissatisfaction. Does that seem to describe <laughs> most of us? But the good news is we're not stuck there. And we are literally changing our brains, changing our minds as we practice. And I think of this today as, as for many of you, this is probably a harder day than the first day. 
Some people call this a kind of more like a detox center. It's uh, so much to deal with. But the Buddha reminded us that he said, if, if, this wasn't, if it wasn't possible to do this, I would not ask you to. That it really is possible to heal our relationship to the present moment. It's possible to, to come to embrace these states of mind, to use these, these very states of mind that so entrance us into states of misery and unhappiness, to use the very state of mind brought into awareness to use them as a doorway to a sense of embodied presence, to really find our home in the present moment, even with the presence of these different states. And that's where the uh, mindfulness comes in. And that's why we speak about these tonight, because they are so universal, they're so common, they're so entrancing, and yet each of us, and what what your training is, is to start noticing them that slight shift from being carried along by these trances to noticing them is really the shift from literally from bondage to freedom. That kind of happiness that the Buddha spoke about, lokiya sukha, the conditioned happiness, the happiness that depends on hunger, he also called it the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. Because even though there's so much pleasure associated with it, and there are in, there are enormous pleasures, and we should we should enjoy them, but we it's very easy to get caught in what he called misplaced faith or a misperception that they can really give us a kind of lasting relief, and we become a slave to these to our wanting mind. So it can be quite interesting to start to notice. And how we work with all the hindrances is really the same. We notice, oh, this is desire. We don't just notice the story of desire and the content of it. That's an interesting thing to notice the content of your desires. But more importantly, we notice how it manifests through our body. We notice what the impact of desire is in in the case of desire. So when we have a desire, for obviously for something more pleasurable than we're experiencing, the picture in our mind is something that gives us uh, a feeling of delight. The Buddha often talked about the sense of craving, tanha. He talked about it as tanha with delight. So we delight in the state of craving. So there's pleasure in it. That's part of its addictive power. But often we don't actually sense what the underlying universe what the underlying feeling is in our body, that sense that I described of suspended well-being. But when we actually do drop into our body and feel what that state of wanting is like, what's it like? What is it like when we're in the state of wanting? You've heard the expression, burning with desire. There's often a feeling of, of unsettledness, that sense of something's wrong, not quite okay we can come to recognize that. More importantly, when we connect with it, with the, the power of mindfulness, since the force, these forces in our mind are incompatible with mindfulness. Well, they're, they're compatible with noticing, but they're, they, don't, they can't hold their power when we're mindful. So when we meet the feeling of desire through the body with mindfulness, it reveals itself as something that that comes, it goes. Sometimes that desire for the bell to ring, if we tune into that state of waiting, you know, it can come in this form of waiting, wanting, expecting, hoping, whatever it is, you feel it through the body, you recognize, oh, this is wanting, it arises, it feels a little bit uncomfortable. It's not not that bad once we feel it loses its juice, but it passes away, sometimes long before the bell rings. And all of a sudden, you thought that you needed that bell to ring to feel the relief. But by virtue of, your, of the power of your attention, uh, you experience the freedom. You didn't necessarily have to be carried along by that stream. Now, I learned this the hard way. because. There are three general character types 
that reflect those three root causes of suffering I spoke about, the grasping, the greed, hatred, and ignorance. Each of us manifests predominantly one of these, uh, more, more than the other, one of these three types. And the three types are the greed type or the grasping type, the aversive or hatred type. Someone in the group today described themselves as an aversive type. And it's actually interesting to know what your general proclivities are, what your general tendencies are, not to create a whole identity around it, but to, to see what kinds of forces are in the mind and what shows up. And of course, it's really not personal in these forces just come uninvited. I don't ask to feel desire. It comes. You don't ask to feel that sense of, I can't be happy till the bell rings. It, it just comes of itself. It's like a weather front that comes into our hearts and our bodies. But I'm, I would characterize myself as much more of the grasping type as opposed to the aversive or the deluded type. And so my tendency when things are a little bit uncomfortable or you know any number of reasons, it, my mind will innocently seek for relief some kind of pleasurable experience. And there have been times in my life and in my practice where a thought arose and I wasn't particularly mindful. And that thought of, you know, I'll just think of something in my daily life. I had the thought once at 10.30 in the evening of an ice cream. I shouldn't probably have said ice cream in this room. <laughs> so sorry. I was living on 20th and Dolores Street in San Francisco and uh, 24th Street was a cornucopia of ice cream parlors, double rainbow dryers or whatever, whatever they were at the time. And into my mind came this very simple thought. Wouldn't it be nice to have an ice cream cone? Meanwhile, I was already tucked into bed with a nice <laughs> book. With a nice book. But before I knew it, so entranced was I by the, um, the force of this desire that I was out of bed with the clothes on, down three flights of stairs, making my way up to 24th Street, into the ice cream parlor, and got the ice cream, ate it, had my, ah. But then I looked around, half-dressed, slightly self-conscious, <laughs> a little embarrassed that I had just been driven by my mind. What do we normally do at that moment? We get another one. <laughs> we don't want to deal with the, the fundamental emptiness of that experience. So our mind either goes to sleep or it generates a, another one. So it's very entrancing. There was a yogi also who had experienced and innocently had experienced the addiction of uh, college sports because they lived in a state where the sports team was really the religion of the state and there was great identification and, and connection with this uh, sports team. And so any thoughts associated with it brought this kind of natural desire to, to be able to watch that team whenever they played. And there was an annual game that they played against their chief rival. This is always, at, uh, this game was played at Thanksgiving and this yogi um, started scheming in the midst, literally almost two months into a three-month meditation retreat started scheming about how to be able to watch that game. <laughs> and it, they were paying attention to it enough to uh, take it up with their teacher and describe what they, was going on. And somebody had overheard the conversation and wrote a note to the yogi offering to drive them silently <laughs> to a town 35 miles away and get a hotel room and watch the game. And this yogi actually took them up on it. They did it. 
They traveled those 35, 40 miles, went to the hotel, the motel room, watched the game. Their team lost. <laughs> there was that moment again, self-conscious, embarrassed, empty. But this time, their eyes were wide open. And that, that moment became the cause paying attention to that, at least the effect of it. They, couldn't, they didn't catch that chain be, before it took them to Amherst, Massachusetts, but, they, <laughs> but they, at that moment that they did wake up, it became the cause of an intense, um, uh, more passionate engagement in the practice. And uh, I have to admit that yogi was me. Embarrassing. <laughs> I've told that story so many times, but it's still a little shocking. Hmm. So the invitation of our practice is to not have that not be dragged along for a lifetime in that state of waiting. And all of us have our little picture of what we think we have to experience in order to feel relief. And uh, it's, at some point, it's helpful to really look at that. What, is our, uh, what are the conditions that we create for a sense of well-being? Of course, we discover them on the retreat. You didn't expect yourself to be so dissatisfied from time to time today, but that's what shows up. So, of course, the flip side of the desiring mind is the aversive mind. And the aversive type, uh, both the aversive type has excessive amounts of uh, complaining and criticizing and judging oneself, each other. And we see a lot of this um, in our own minds. And it's, it comes up a lot on retreats. And the aversive mind has the belief that something has to go away in order to, uh, to find some relief. And it's amazing. I, I'm thinking now about the, some of the notes over the years that, that I've gotten, some hate mail. <laughs> uh, and, but more amazing are some of the notes that the uh, cooking staff have gotten around meals that are so lovingly prepared. So, uh, you know, they've cooked their meal, put out their best meal, and depending on the state of the mind of a person, and every one of us goes through these aversive cycles, the littlest thing gets just chewed up and spit out, sometimes literally. Uh, But this is really the trance of aversion. And then we tend to be quite, we, at times we become quite reactive to uh, our aches and our pains. And it's not so much the aches and the pains that are often the problem, it's really the reaction to them. As we've said, I'm sure in, all of us have said in different ways, it really isn't so much what you're experiencing, but it's the attitude in the mind, it's the mental state, the reaction in your mind toward what's happening. And often that state of mind, that reaction in the mind is aversive. It comes in the form of irritation, ill will, anger, fear, another form of aversion. And even boredom could be considered a, f- a flavor of aversion, of just not, not wanting what's there. It often has a little tone of aversion. While I'm on the aversion front, there is a phenomena that some of you will come to notice. And I'm speaking, of course, tonight a lot to the people who are on their first retreat. But there's a, a common phenomena. So if it happens to you, uh, don't be surprised. It's classically called a VV, which means Vipassana Vendetta, <laughs> where s- there's some trigger, some one either cuts you off, or they take too much food in the lunch line, or they walk too fast, whatever it is, 
something, something one of us says, the way we say it, whether we're not sensitive in some way, it triggers a little reaction in the mind. Unpleasant, first of all, there's a feeling that comes unpleasant. And very quickly, following that unpleasant, it turns into, I don't like that. Often followed, unpleasant is often followed by dislike, once, when, especially when we're not mindful. And before you know it, the mind is off and running. It has just created that person or that situation as the ultimate reason for all your misery. <laughs> and then, the, of course, the demand of the aversive mind is that that person has to, the situation has to change, otherwise no relief. Of course, the flip side of that is the, on the desire side is what we call the VR, the Vipassana romance, where someone in the room triggers your a pleasant feeling and pretty soon you're mating and dating and <laughs> married and divorced and all within the span of a very short time. And, and this is the force of the wanting mind. We're asked to notice this, feel it through the body. Come out of the, come out of the story that comes with each of these. Feel it, recognize it as a changing condition. Save yourself from the, uh, from the torment of, of really believing that you will never have a happy day until you mate with that person. Because <laughs> that's really what our mind will tell us. A traditional antidote for the wanting mind is, um, is one-pointedness. So as you, as you really collect and compose your mind, as you just keep connecting, just keep bringing your attention to the present moment in general, and you keep staying with that, the feeling of, of steadiness and connectedness often begins to bring a certain kind of appreciation of the present moment, a contentment, a, a feeling of wholeness in the present moment, and consequently the desire to be somewhere else begins to diminish a little bit. Till that becomes much more of our default place of living, is a, a, a desire to be exactly where we are. If I asked you right now, most of you would say you desire to be exactly where you are, but often we're we are caught in that trance, that especially when present moment triggers some kind of, um, something triggers a desire or aversion. One thing to reflect on with aversion, the Buddha talked about the aversive mind as having two main causes, especially when it hardens into anger. And I've had a lot of anger uh, come up in relationship to certain things. And it was very useful when I heard this teaching where he said, we get angry for two reasons. So you can, without spending the whole time thinking about these, it might be useful just to reflect. We get, we get angry because of frustrated desire. So this is how they're so connected. When that desire for something to be a certain way gets frustrated. And the second is wounded pride. When something triggers a, a deflation, a collapsing of, of some view that, that we had of ourselves. I had an, an experience of this really so vividly when I sat with a, a teacher named uh, Upandita Sayadaw, a Burmese teacher back in the 80s, who I spent many years, I was a glutton for punishment, and I spent many years with him. And he was wonderful at at least it was thought that he was wonderful at really seeing different character types, grasping types, aversive types. He used to pick certain people who he thought had excessive pride or had excessive this or excessive that, and he would use what one of my old friends and colleagues called Stone Age psychology to deal with it. The way he worked with me is he thought that I was a little bit... Um, he, at least I assume, I, he never said this uh, explicitly, but he, I think he assumed that I was uh, attached to being a, a good yogi, busy being a good yogi. And so the way he worked with me was when I would walk into the room for my meetings with him, he would uh, at first tell me how wonderful I was. 
and I got all puffed up. After he had me softened up, the next times that I went to see him, he, when he saw me, he picked up a book and started reading. Kind of just looked away. Ignored me. Didn't like that. Aversive response. Then, as I started to report my experience to him, and the encouragement in this style of, of interviews, you don't know how lucky you are. <laughs> we have, you know, it's warm and fuzzy nowadays. But in this case, he wanted you to report exactly, moment to moment, what you experienced. Whether you were able to notice it, what happened to the experience you noticed, sequence after sequence. No frills, no embellishments, and it was really wonderful because it showed me the difference between the simplicity of what's happening in any moment and, and the, um, the elaborations that my mind plays with. So I reported in what I thought was the best way that I could, and he looked at me like I was the absolute biggest imbecile that ever walked into the room. And, and my pride was shattered. And it just triggered enormous um, rage and anger. And I would literally spend the time between interviews planning my revenge <laughs> and how he, he wasn't. So it really showed me the connection between ill will and anger and that wounded pride or, or frustrated desire. Of course, I want, desire was for, to be seen as wonderful. This kind of dependent sense of well-being is, um, as I said, it's really a, just a part of our cultural heritage, you know, one that where it's all about looking good. And as uh, Bo Lozoff used to talk about, it's all about keeping up with the Joneses. And he suggests that, the jo that we should realize that the Joneses are not very happy and really understand the pain and the impact of that um, excessive demands, excessive demand for things to be different than the way they are. Thich Nhat Hanh speaks about it in a very gentle way, how, how this tendency of mind, especially when unnoticed, encourages us to topple forward into that imagined future. And he describes it in his poem called Froglessness. And it goes like this. The first fruition of the practice is the attainment of froglessness. When the frog is put on the center of a plate, she will jump out of the plate after just a few seconds. If you put the frog back again on the center of the plate, she will again jump out. You have so many plans. There's something you want to become. Therefore, you always want to make a leap, a leap forward. It's difficult to keep the frog still on the center of the plate. You and I both have Buddha nature in us. This is encouraging. But you and I both have frog nature in us. That's why the first attainment of the practice, froglessness is its name. So with aversion, getting back to aversion, that tendency of the mind to leap toward what has to be gotten rid of or moved away from in order to find relief, we work with it in the same way, is we feel it in the body. We feel it, not just the, the story of aversion, not just the vendetta, not just the wounded pride or the planning for revenge, but we feel it. What does that feel like in the body? be able to say inwardly for ourselves. And you can even use these words. I borrow them from the teacher named Ajahn Sumedho. Aversions like this. We really let ourselves feel it. And a few things happen when we let ourselves, can happen when we let ourselves just feel that state of aversion, irritation, even boredom. Boredom is one of those states, it's sometimes considered a really good sign. It's a sign that you're, you're unwinding from that intense dependency on what's next and on stimulation, on the, as I think Larry was speaking about, on the, the great experience. 
But we often don't let ourselves actually feel that. It immediately triggers that uh, we start, we have, aversion, we have boredom and then aversion to boredom. And pretty soon we're planning, we're looking for the next delicious experience. Instead, with boredom, with irritation, with ill will, we feel it. What's boredom like when you feel it? What is, what's really there? Oh, it feels a certain way in my body, has a certain kind of flavor in my mind, things get kind of dense and tight, and my body feels kind of like a thud, uh, a little bit like I'm not, there's something wrong. You know, I can't even put words to it, but the encouragement is to just feel it. You will, if you stay with it, with mindfulness, any of these states, you will recognize them as these forces, these forces that have arisen, that come and they go, again, just like the weather. They are not you, they are not yours, they can't define you, they're changing conditions. So the very experiences that so entrance us into misery become the cause of the insight knowledge. We, we learn over and over with these experiences one teacher says they become the manure of Bodhi. We learn over and over just by experiencing everything that we pay attention to. It comes, it goes. It's not me, it's not mine, it's not personal. It's a changing condition. We see that the breath breathes itself. We see that sensations emerge and come and go. We then see these states of mind as changing conditions. We see, we try to meet them without pushing them away, without compounding the aversion by having aversion to aversion, then aversion to the aversion to the aversion. As much as we can, we work with cultivating a kind of accepting attitude. One of, the, one of our friends coined an acronym. Uh, maybe someone else will talk about it a little more elaborately, but an acronym called RAIN which is really the, an encouragement of how to, how to be with these uh, experiences. And the first, the R means recognize it. The A means accept it. The I means investigate it. What's it feel like? What's its flavor? And what happens to it when you feel it? And the N means don't identify with it. Don't create an identity around it. Just, just let it come, let it go. Let it reveal its, don't believe what I'm saying, but just look to see whether this is true. Let it reveal its selfless nature. So, of course, the force of desire and aversion tend to uh, feed right into the, um, the state that many of you talked about today, which is the state of sloth and torpor, the third state. And some conversation was done about um, working with this, you know, standing up. And one of the wonderful ways of the antidotes for sloth and torpor is to make sure that you do the walking and sometimes take a brisk walk if, there's, if, if you're particularly dull. Or as Larry was saying, sit on the edge of a well. Uh, some of the traditional antidotes are pulling on your ears. You might even try it right now. And, midway in a Dharma talk in the late evening, or open your eyes really wide, look up at a light, splash water on the face. These are some of the antidotes. But the first, uh, the first method to use, if you can, is to try to be mindful of the feeling of sloth and torpor and dullness. That really is, sometimes has nothing to do with being sleepy. Sometimes it's just a habit of mind, a state of mind that once brought into the light of awareness. It, um, and noticed, oh, this is sloth and torpor and feeling it's cloudy, heavy, whatever that is nature. Sometimes just the effort to notice it, sometimes it shows itself as changing and it passes. Sometimes it's just a habit of avoidance. Sometimes it's a, it's a feeling that comes as a threshold to some more underlying emotional expression or discharge. Whatever flavor it is, 
we try to just feel it as it is. And of course, if we, if we persistently feel exhausted, that, as we were saying this morning, you may need to take a, a nap. But often, the quality of sloth and torpor is really the effect of, well, one, it's the effect of having our vital energy so diminished by wanting and not wanting our daily life and the stresses of life. And it takes a little while for our vital energy to come back on retreat. So the sloth and torpor is quite natural. But sometimes it is, a, it is just an imbalance between energy, which is required in our practice, and tranquility. You'll see this balance between energy and tranquility. And often the conditions of a retreat, especially the first days of a retreat, the conditions are quiet, it's beautiful, we're silent, eyes are closed. Of course, when the eyes are closed, it's a, our mind says, hmm, this reminds me of sleep time. And we tend to check out. So often we experience a kind of relaxed tranquility first. We feel tranquility before we get our vital energy back. And what happens when we have low energy and high tranquility? As one of my I think Jack Kornfield coined the phrase, it looks like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. <laughs> so it's an indication that you need a little energy. And so that may require sleep. It may require a little fast walking. It may require some of these antidotes. But I would say and encourage everyone, just to echo what was said earlier, to, to stand up in the hall if you start to drift off. Just that little extra energy to hold your body up can balance the, the quietness, balance the tranquility, and you'll find that you can still develop the same continuity of attention standing up. Don't be bashful. The fourth state of mind that is very common and entrances us to feel not so, it's not easy to be with. But it's part of a whole, it's often associated with, with um, the thoughts of the future and thoughts of the past. It's the state of mind of restlessness and agitation, often coming in the form of worry and regret. But it manifests in our body as a kind of turbulent, agitated. It's, sometimes it's described as a, a metaphor of a, a body of water, of water that's, that's boiling, or not boiling, but turbulent, windswept. And so it's very hard to settle. And a sense of one-pointedness also helps that. And, and contentment and, and ease and spaciousness really helps with restlessness. But most important is to let yourself feel restless. Let yourself feel that for a moment. See what happens when you mix that with awareness. It's also helpful to take a very precise posture and work with a gentle stillness, checking to see whether you're imposing, you're using excessive force, trying to make your mind do something, or you're pushing something away intensely. As much as possible, creating an environment of acceptance, of softness, of ease, and even sometimes dropping these words into your mind, the antidote would be the opposite of restlessness, would be ease or contentment. And just, just think about what the impact of that word is when you drop it into your mind. Contentment. I feel myself getting content as I say it. Noticing the without getting caught in the story of, of worry. Uh, worry is, as we know, it is completely useless. And yet it torments us a lot. It just has never brought anyone any relief. In fact, uh, Hafiz wrote a, a wonderful little poem about, about uh, worry. He says, Find, it's called Find a Better Job. Now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? Now, it's easy to say, but worry arises unbidden, just as all these states of mind do. So the, the more we can begin to notice this, it will come. We want, to, we want to meet it with kind attention. 
We want to, don't want to reject ourselves, don't want to create a, a new judgment about ourselves for having worry. It's a natural part of our conditioning. The same with regret. But it's also useful to notice what the, what the engines are, what the beliefs are around worry and regret. There's often some, it's part of that trance of time that we can, that the future actually exists and that we somehow, if we think about it enough, we can kind of control the outcome. Not remembering that we're just having thoughts, imagined views of the future in the present moment. So whatever we can do to re, we, and so we get lost in that dream of the future. So whatever we can do to reorient ourselves to the present moment, to find refuge again, to find our home base, to find that embodied awareness, each of these states of mind entrance us so much that we lose a sense of being at home in our body, that sense of presence. And somehow we feel like we've gotten somehow uh, disconnected from the flow of life. So how do we find our way back to nature, come back into our bodies, feel how it flows? Notice restlessness, worry, guilt, regret as a changing condition, not personal. Just another weather front. Last but not least is doubt. I think we're... I went over. Last one is doubt. And it's the... um, Even though it's the last one, it's probably the most powerful hypnotic force in our mind. It's that one, that, that voice that says, why am I here? What am I doing? And it starts with a simple experience, and before you know it, it's, I can't do this. It's not working. Everyone else in the room is getting enlightened. I'm miserable. Why did I sign up? You know, it goes on and on and on. Before you know it, especially when it goes unnoticed, it completely deadens our practice, stops us. And it does this so many ways in our life. We can begin to wake up to this as just another state of mind. This is doubt. And be able to notice, oh, doubt is like this. Just as with the others, we recognize it as a changing condition. This is doubt. This is confusion. This is, I don't know what to do. That's another form of it. That moment that we notice this is what's happening, we come back into more clarity, more sense of presence. Now, there is a kind of doubt that we all want to cultivate, which is what we call the great doubt. This is the, more the skeptical, confused doubt. We want to cultivate the great doubt that says, I don't know, but I'm completely open to finding out why. It's the, what the Zen tradition, in the Korean Zen tradition, is called the don't know mind. That the encouragement is to cultivate this don't know. Every moment, don't know. Just the last little passage I'll leave you with about doubt and don't know is uh, the famous Yogi Berra Sutra. Where he said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. (laughs) And a lot of this, what we know for sure, are these kinds of conclusions about ourselves and about reality that come in the form of self-doubt or self-recriminating self, uh, commentary. And these things that we know for sure just are not true. They are creations of an imaginary version of ourselves, that one that really doesn't exist. So these are the hindrances wanting mind, the aversive mind, restless and agitated mind, the dull mind, and the doubting mind. Get to know them. They are, some, one teacher said, the practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. (laughs) No, but really the, the practice is a lot of working with these states of mind and really trying to find your composure with them and letting them become the cause of your awakening rather than the cause of unhappiness because we all want to be happy and it's there for the taking if we're more mindful of them. So let's just sit for a moment.
Enjoy your walking practice for the next uh, 15 minutes or so. Enjoy your hindrances. And we will sit again about five minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.